Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, I'm going to continue our series on the history of the engine by looking at the life of Hero of Alexandria. Morsin Karim will review Richard Hindmarsh's Edging Towards Bio-Utopia. And we're going to have a chat about the Garno Draft Report on carbon emissions trading. What more can I say except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. And first up, we have the news with Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Female chimpanzees are screamers when there's a male audience to their sexual activities, but not when the girls are watching. Simon Townsend of the University of St Andrews in Scotland found that female chimps vocalise more often the higher the rank of the male they're having sex with, as long as there's a male audience. He suggests that perhaps female chimps want to advertise to males listening that their partner is high enough ranking to protect them. The new study finds no evidence that the rhythmic high-pitched sounds cause the males to compete. Townsend and his colleagues studied an unusual group in Uganda's Bundago Forest, with about 30 adult females, with only 5 high-quality adult males. As females neared ovulation, the rumps enlarged, so Townsend was able to pick promising chimps to follow through the forest. Over the course of months, he observed 287 encounters of 7 females. When he noticed activity, he scanned the forest for 50 metres around, the distance that the calls carry. Townsend thinks that the vocalisations confuse listening males over who the father really is. Real snail mail, using real snails, has been displayed at the SIGGRAPH Computer Art Conference this year. The snails have radio frequency chips glued to their shells that have messages transmitted to them. The snail moves at their own pace to the receiver, which reads the message from the chip on the shell. The snails are part of the Slow Art Project and move at 0.05 kilometres per hour. New Scientist reports on the discovery in Holland of two plastics that combine together to conduct electricity as well as a metal. Both plastics are insulators, but when laid side to side with just a bare two nanometers in between, they conduct as well as metal. This opens the way for inkjet printers to cheaply print electronic circuits. Those magic oranges given to players on the football field really are magic. Polymethooxalated flavones in the peel of sweet oranges shortens the time needed to recover from exercise, according to a study funded by the US Army Natick Soldier System Center in Massachusetts. Horses normally took 110 seconds to recover from exercise, but horses that sucked sweet oranges only took 85 seconds to recover, which is 25% faster. Beware of horses sucking sweet oranges.
And now for our book review. Morsin Karim has had a look at Edging Towards Bio-Utopia by Richard Hindmarsh, and here he is, Morsin. The public can be invited into the scientific world through a number of means. Magazines, radio shows, TV news and committees. But what happens when a scientific issue that could very well affect a nation is strategically left out of the public's awareness? Richard Hindmarsh's Edging Towards Bio-Utopia describes the history of recombinant DNA technology in Australia. The manipulation of the stuff of life was being heralded as the next great innovation. Genetic engineering, or GE, had the ability to construct crops resistant to pests, lead to medical innovations, and create novel products for industry. This version of a bio-utopia was sold by the scientists themselves and supported by those with a vested interest in the technology, including industry and the government. During the early days of GE in the 1970s, warnings stating that genetic research should receive the broadest possible dialogue in society were already being sounded. And fair enough, GE research would have implications towards agriculture, health, medicine and the environment. But there were various pressures that worked against this warning. Early on, the dynamics of policymaking moved from concerns over safety to commercial opportunity, scientific prestige and international competitiveness. How could Australia possibly be left behind in this new technology? So how would the proponents of GE purposely leave the public outside of the debate? One way is to set up conferences and committees that largely involve those who would benefit from the research and exclude those against the work. If the scientists who were conducting the experiments set up the committees, or even serve on them, then they could push forward their own agendas. For instance, the International Conference on Recombinant DNA Molecules, held at Asilomar, in 1975, became known for its self-interest and self-governance. There was little representation from the health sciences, and no participants represented environmental interests. Only one scientist who was critical of recombinant DNA work was invited, but he was unable to attend. In addition, the role of reporters at the conference were viewed as being conduits, to alert the public to the issues as defined by the conference. Spin and rhetoric was used to ease concerns. For example, Man has been practicing genetic engineering for centuries in order to improve the quality of livestock and domesticated plants. This argument proposed that GE technology was an extension of traditional breeding practices. There was the precision argument. The precision of genetic engineering ensures certainty of the outcome. This treats genomes as Lego pieces, where cutting and pasting the genes was such a well-characterized process that we would know what the end result would be. And of course, there was the Australia is missing out on biotechnology argument, which was made to gain broader support for biodevelopment. What about those scientists who spoke out against GE? Why weren't there many of those? Well, a scientist who takes an ethical and public interest position would have been looked down upon by other scientists who believe that adopting an advocacy position undermines the objectivity of science. And the application of scientific discovery is certainly not objective. The scientific process does not purely depend on inquiry as a well-defined method. Progress depends on the social construction of that knowledge through negotiation, gaining allies to particular views, and the strategic blocking of other views. If researchers show dissent, this may affect their reputation in the scientific community. This in turn could hold up research, studies may be blocked, proposals may be assessed disfavourably, and collaborations might not be sought. In March 1979, the University of Melbourne Assembly released a hard-hitting and damning report which found many serious inadequacies and issues with the GE regulatory system. 
The inquiry even recommended that there should have been a halt on all work in the field of recombinant DNA to allow for the evaluation of the potential impact of the technology. This was followed by media coverage, contrasting both the promises and perils of genetic engineering, and questioned whether scientists were the best people to recognise when their work becomes socially or morally offensive. They do, after all, benefit from GE research and its applications. A backlash against GE research started to gain momentum, and the public was increasingly aware. Governments were expected to act as public concern grew. But that didn't stop rules being broken. For instance, in February 1984, without seeking the approval from the Adelaide University Biohazards Committee, two university researchers began a project on transgenic pigs and mice. The committee only found out a year later, and even they chose to keep it hushed up. Safety had not been compromised, but the act was a major breach of the guidelines. Perhaps the researchers found it easier to justify their actions because the monitoring system was voluntary, a system set up by the researchers themselves. The voluntary code of genetic engineering was weak and open to abuse. Incidents like this added to the public's distrust of regulation. On the 20th of July 2000, the Tasmanian government declared a three-year temporary moratorium on genetically modified organisms in agriculture until July 2003. This position was reached after extensive public consultation and advice from the Food Industry Council of Tasmania. But not everyone was convinced that the public should be let into the decision-making process. A minority report from the government members of a Senate committee argued that an increased role for community or ethics representatives would be entirely detrimental to the scientific-based decision-making process and result in unacceptable delays and increased costs. The Greens and the Australian Democrat senators argued that the report did not go far enough. There were grave concerns over GE technology and unknown consequences. These were not alarmist claims. In fact, widespread environmental contamination emerged in the early 2000s with gene flow from genetically modified or GM maize and canola crops to their equivalent non-GM crops. South Australian farmers were concerned over the introduction of GM food crops. In December 2002, the Gene Technology Grains Committee argued that a 5-metre buffer zone between GM and non-GM crops was all that was needed to control for contamination. However, an Australian pollen study found contamination from such crops from as far as 1.5 kilometres away. 5 metres suddenly didn't sound like a good enough distance to prevent contamination with GM crops. Foods made from GM technology found their way onto Australian supermarket shelves. The GM food industry was exempt from labelling foods produced using GM with a number of exemptions, mainly relating to insufficient detectable DNA or protein in the final product. That is, the final product on the shelf had no trace of GM. It was argued that the process of food production was irrelevant if the end product could pass the test of safety. These days, whenever you hear about the application of GM research, it's usually attached to warnings of contamination and concerns over health. The public is more aware, from farmers to shoppers. People do think twice about GM. Edging towards Biotopia is certainly informative, but this isn't a pop science book. If you're after a read that explains the cool organisms that recombinant DNA technology can create, then you must look elsewhere. It is a tale of why it's important for society to have a good understanding of recombinant DNA regulation. The book is also suited for those who want an example where the agenda of scientists can work around the scrutiny of society. This book shouldn't be viewed as fuel for anti-science. 
Rather, it serves as a warning and insight to young scientists who will be exposed to the internal politics and pressures of research, weighed against their own ethics. That was Mohsen Karim reviewing Richard Hindmarsh's Edging Towards Bio-Utopia. It's published by the University of Western Australia Press and available at all good bookstores. You're listening to Diffusion, the international science show, brought to you around the world on our podcast and coast-to-coast by the Community Radio Network. So what's everybody talking about these days? Well, they're talking about climate change, and here in the studios we're going to talk about climate change tonight. Recently, Professor Ross Garno's draft report has come out on carbon emissions trading. And to talk about this report and various other aspects of it, we've got Patrick Ruby, Adrian Saunders, Vicky Saunders, yours truly, Lachlan Watmore, and of course our producer Ian Wolfe behind the panel. Guys, nice to have you here tonight. Nice to be here. Mm. Hi, Lachlan. So I want to ask, what does it mean? Why... Have they got an economist to write about climate change science? Perhaps using an economist, what might signal the fact that the scientific debate is over and it's now for harsh economic measures to be taken? That you know, that uh, I think that the first point of his actual report is um, carbon. Uh, hang on, let me just pull it up here. Global warming is definitely real and sh- and is urgent and should be acted on immediately. That's just the very first point that um, has been summarised by the Sydney Morning Herald here. And I believe he's got two solutions, carbon trading and clean coal, carbon sequestration, carbon dioxide sequestration. Don't you think it's ironic that um, even though he says that we need immediate drastic action, that he says um, for a prescription of what immediate drastic action we need, you'll have to wait till later because we're not finished yet? You mean it's the fact that it's a draft? Well, yeah. He says we need immediate drastic action, mm. um, but we'll get to that later. That's what I got from it. Um, the, the impression that I got um, was that he hasn't been given time to finish a lot of his uh, mathematical modelling, um, in particular his economic modelling, and that the draft report has been put out basically to get people's attention. Again, this is all my impression, but that the draft report has been put out basically to get people's attention, to get them talking about it, and then when the final report comes around in August, it will be well-heralded, shall we say. In other words, Mm -hmm. they're saying something now so that they seem to be saying something now rather than seem to be doing nothing for quite a while until he's actually got it. One of the problems with this report is I believe he's doing economic modelling for the next 100 years on how many people will die in every state um, when currently economists can't call the budget successfully a year in advance. Yeah. That is interesting. By how many people die, that means as a direct result of global warming? As a direct result of global warming per state in Australia. Ian, do you know what that number is? Philip Curry in the Sydney Morning Herald gives an opinion piece Mm. where he says, let's have a look here. He goes to the Garner report and he looks at changes in likely temperature-related deaths due to climate change. All right, temperature-related. I'll just say that again. The Garner report has a section where it models changes in likely temperature-related deaths due to climate change. So he thinks that there'll be... 1,276 Queenslanders who will die every year from temperature-related causes by 2030. Does he specify? Is that in terms of more extreme weather or water shortages or...? Hotter weather. Hotter weather. This is the temperature going up will cause these heat-related deaths. I take it these are uh, percentages on top of the normal uh, number of heat deaths, heat-related deaths that would be expected without global warming. No, this is actually... 
exact numbers. He 12, No, this is not, you know, this many percent or it'll go up by a little bit. This is 1,276 Queenslanders by will die from temperature-related causes by 2030, which will increase to 5,878 a year by 2100. So he's predicted for the next 100 years how many people in Queensland will die from the temperatures rising. That's a bit odd and hard to believe. But uh, It is a draft report, after all. Sorry, Vic, go ahead. Yeah, no, but where is the dollar figure in that? I think that was my question. Okay, like, just a moment. What is it costing us? Okay, so I'm just going down to where he talks about the cost. Well, there's the cost to the health system of people getting sick Definitely. and dying. There's the cost of losing productive people to the economy. Definitely. And there's also the cost of cleaning up, really. I mean, if we're talking about emissions and we're talking about reducing those emissions. To be honest, I can't find here in Philip Curry's article where the cost of per person of dying is in financial terms. I don't know if that's actually been been calculated because he hasn't done his economic modelling yet, so he can't actually come up with any mm. figures until he's actually done that modelling. I think you're right, Doc. I think that, that's what's missing. So the econo- he's done the modelling enough to work out the deaths, which is the scientific part of the modelling, mm. yeah. which, as Locke said, has been done. But the economic part, the, the, just, the rubbery part... He just hasn't had time, to, just to, he just hasn't had time to, to work the figures, that's all. But, you know, come August, hopefully he will have, and he'll come up with some actual hard and fast figures. August this year? Uh, apparently. In three weeks. Yeah, it's so, not so long what? at all. No, it's not, is it? Yeah, OK, it's July, isn't it? Yeah. Because he's already allocated percentage of whatever... He's already allocated a percentage of whatever money is there, like yeah. 50% to the poorer homes? Yeah, 30% of revenue to go to help businesses, yeah. uh, 20% to, to research and 50% uh, to um, compensate poorer households. And that would also include the extra money that he's talking about. If you want a licence to emit carbon, then you need to pay for that licence as well. Mm. Does he say the price? No, this is what I mean. There's no dollars anywhere. He's got There's something here in his uh, key findings, uh, the summary of his key findings says, government should consider a fixed low carbon price for the first two years, then allow the market to take over in 2012. But what market mechanisms are at work here? I have no idea. Oh, I thought, I thought that's very clear. I mean, yeah. if you're giving cheap carbon licences, polluting, basically if you're giving a licence to pollute, to pollute it's yeah. cheap in the first few years, what it means you're doing is the people who are polluting right now, the big polluters, will get it cheap. People who start a business after the two years will have to pay a lot, so they won't be able to compete with the people who are already in business. This is a way, it looks to me, of paying off the vested interests by giving them cheap licences, which destroys the market that they're trying to create. I mean, if the free market is the way to solve the problem, and frankly, I don't think it is, then this is going to ruin the whole plan by if you they have to be the same prices and they have to be genuine credits that people earn by emitting less you'd also think that mm. um, uh, increasing that the cost there is going to make people cheat they're going to be like you know people dumping asbestos in the bush and they're going to bleed carbon out anyway they're just going to try and hide it but how are we going to police carbon emissions that's pretty hard isn't you got it got me yeah so we need a special authority. Does he mention anything in the report about a special authority to police carbon emissions it's, from everybody? It's just a draft. So if industry puts out more carbon dioxide than they're saying, mm. how would we know? Well, I mean, surely you would have... Yeah, I mean, it, it, surely you'd have some sort of governing body that can... Um, that Aud- can audit. Audit. Yeah. Like the EPA does in, in the United States uh, to audit these businesses and what sort of emissions they're putting out. Um in terms of energy use and the sort of third party or more distant 
carbon um, footprint that they're creating there, I mean, that would be a little bit more difficult, but I'm sure that it is doable. Our problems are that we're using dirty sources Mm. of energy and we're not actually counting the cost of cleaning up the dirt in the cost of the fuel, right? So we include the cost. Um, But wouldn't it be better to not use dirty fuel at all? Like, shouldn't we be going for solar and wind, which we've got enough in Australia to run the whole country? I have one name to give you. T. Boone Pickens. You heard of T. Boone Pickens? No. He's a Texas billionaire, spent his entire life drilling in the ground to get oil. He's now devoted an entire billion dollars to wind energy. All throughout Texas and the uh, Great Plains states where you get mm. fantastic wind energy, it's just you know waiting to be tapped. He's going to spend a billion dollars on wind farms. He says he's got enough money, he doesn't need any more money. How many uh, water, yachts can he water ski behind, etc., etc.? And he's been um, uh, digging uh, oil up out of the ground. And he was on the telly the other day and he was saying, we've made ourselves a great big mess and it's our fault, we in the Western Hemisphere. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to put a billion dollars into wind energy. Oh, good on him. Yeah. I love stories like that. You hear them so rarely. Well, Mm. I read an interesting suggestion. Mark Pesci of the ABC Inventors uh, and Futurist has a blog on the ABC site called Unleashed. And he suggests that the government won't solve this problem. If we wait for the government to solve it, nothing's ever going to happen. So we need to solve it ourselves. And we need to accept the fact that it's going to cost a little bit extra at first for solar power, but not too much. So he suggests we'd use the power of human networking. Say you want to start up a business with a solar power station, right? If you can get 5,000 people who are guaranteed for the next 15 years to buy power from you, then that's enough of a market for you to get a loan from one of the big banks. And then you can build your solar power plant, plug into the national grid, and put in your clean power. Those 5,000 people will get clean power and... You can build your business because eventually it'll be cheaper. More people can do the same thing and it can just catch on. Now, this doesn't need government subsidies, doesn't need government help, doesn't need the government at all, in fact, as long as they don't get in the way. So maybe we can do it ourselves. Maybe we don't actually need the government to act since they won't anyway. I agree. I I think it's... It's quite perplexing how in Australia, in such a sunny country, we don't actually have more solar power being utilised. And you've got countries like Germany where they're using a lot more solar power per capita, or they're trying to per capita than we are, and yet it's in the middle of Europe and it's... I've been to Germany several times. It's cold and it's rainy and... Um, it's, a low it's incidence of like, sunlight. Yeah. It's nothing like the sunlight exposure that we have in Australia. And for me, it's, it's really just perplexing. I mean, what is it that's been stifling the industry? Coal. In, yeah. in a word. That was a very resounding <laughs> <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> and petrol? Yes. And the key difference mm. in Germany is that the government's behind those schemes that are getting people to uh, create solar panels. That's right. So they're actually remunerating people with a guaranteed price for their power back into the grid. Um, so they're, they're behind the economic impetus to do that. So the minimum we need is for people who do create alternative energy sources from wind or solar or whatever is that they can put it back into the grid. Yeah. Which probably means having the government own the grid. Because if a private company owns the grid... Why should they let some other company put their power in and be in opposition? It seems like that's what's worked in Germany and the places where it has worked is True. because they can plug into the grid. Um, mm. It's it's networking again. 
that or they can work out for a way for someone else to generate their power and they get paid for it. The big companies, I mean. Which means putting up the price. Yeah. If you're going to share the profits, it means comes up the with, price. comes with some sort of price always. There's been cool. a lot of, um, lot of discussion as well about the whole idea of means testing, mm-hmm. rebates you get for solar power. I mean, do you think the government might have put a spoke in the wheels by mentioning that? Well, it's pretty odd that they're looking at giving the coal industry huge amounts of money in order to put their dirt into the ground where it will bubble up to punish our children and grandchildren eventually all the carbon dioxide, um, clean coal is getting all this money, but they've cut the subsidies and they're means-testing solar power subsidies. Surely they want to encourage everybody, rich or poor, to get solar panels if they can afford them. So let me get this straight. They're only going to be reimbursing people who can't afford solar power for solar power energy. That's seems to be what you're saying, they're, Pat. They're, they're going to be... Um when it means testing it, they're going to give a higher reimbursement to people from with, that are judged to be from a lower socioeconomic status, I think, or lower income status. Hmm. Or um, as they called it, poorer households. Uh, one thing which might actually drive home the effect of global warming on health would be if it could be converted into disability-adjusted life years. Um, in medical statistics, um, disability-adjusted life years looks at the impact of a particular condition on... Um, both things like morbidity and mortality. So we've got things like cardiovascular disease, which is the number one um, in terms of DALI score, uh, disability-adjusted life year um, problems, and things like chronic depression as well. So if we had a DALI score for global warming, it might actually drive things home and might get a little bit of support from the Australian Medical Association to get some impetus happening on cleaning up And that's all from this edition of Diffusion, the international science show. Contributing to this edition were Ian Wolfe, Morshin Karim, Ian Wolfe, Morshin Karim, Patrick Ruby, Adrian and Vicky Saunders, and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. This edition of Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and we're broadcast across the country on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to download our podcast, you can do so on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And if you'd like to email us with praise, uh, criticism, proposals of marriage, things like that, you can get us on diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. My name is Lachlan Watmore and we'll see you next week for more sciencey goodness.